Good evening. Uh, Tonight's passage of scripture comes from Luke 7, verse 36, through chapter 8, verse 3. A sinful woman forgiven. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she had learned that he was reclining at the at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this was who is touching him, for she is a sinner." And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender who had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he had canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time that I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven." For she loved much. But he who has forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say, to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were, were with him. Also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, Susanna, and Susanna, uh, and many others who were provided for them out of their means. This is truly the word of the Lord. This is uh, one of two times Jesus is anointed um, by women in his ministry. And Luke sets up this story um, by bringing in two men, two highly religious leaders, a rabbi and a priest. And they're, going to, they're having dinner together. And a sinful woman comes in, and she's a mess. She's broken and crying, and she's washing Jesus' feet with her tears, and she wipes them with her undone hair, and she anoints his feet with oil. And Luke sets up the scene, and we're like, what's going to happen? We have a rabbi, and we have a Pharisee. What are the reactions? What's Simon's reaction? We see in verse 39 that it says, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is and that she is a sinner. Jesus, in his reaction to this woman, makes this Pharisee extremely uncomfortable. He makes him wonder if he even knows God at all. 
Because if the way that Jesus is responding and reacting to this woman is right and good, maybe he doesn't know God at all. All the Pharisee could see was the inferiority of this woman, and he is extremely offended by her actions. He judges her, and in doing so, he reveals his own lack of faith. There is an ugly truth about the church. The church has taught for many centuries that the nature, being, and essence of a woman is inferior to that of man. That women are less moral, less rational, less powerful than their male counterparts. Quoting a few of our church fathers, and these are difficult to hear, they were for me, Um, Irenaeus in the second century said, both nature and the law place the woman in subordinate condition to the man. Augustine in the fourth century said, nor can it be doubted that it is more consonant with the order of nature that men should bear rule over women than women over men. Chrysostom in the fourth century said, for the woman taught the man once and made him guilty of disobedience and wrought our ruin. Therefore, because she has made a bad use of her power, or rather her equality with him, God made her subject to her husband. And John Calvin in the 16th century um, says in his commentary on 1 Timothy that women should not assume authority over the man. It is not permitted by their condition. Um, A contemporary of John Calvin was John Knox in the 16th century, and he said, Nature, I say, does paint women to be forth weak and frail and patient, feeble and foolish. And experience has declared them to be inconstant, variable, and cruel. Since flesh is subordinate to spirit, a woman's place is beneath man's. So we see from those um, quotes that that women are viewed inferior in their nature, essence, and being, and all of these were an e- all of these views were an echo of Greek philosophy that understood women as material, being connected to the earth, being able to give birth, and men as godlike. So very early on, the church fathers who were educated in Greek philosophy were reading into their scripture and their interpretation that this, this cultural normative view that women are inferior. So meaning women were assumed to be inferior because of their, their the fall, nature. In all of his quotes, you heard the word nature or condition or fall. And they're referring back to Genesis and Eve being deceived by the serpent. And tragically, for centuries, the fall of Eve has been taken as a pattern to follow for the treatment of women in the church. Um, family, or society. To assess the feminine based on the fall and to assess the masculine based on the redemption of Christ is inconsistent. The spiritual status of women and men, people, humans, should be assessed in the same manner. Why is this important? It's extremely important because who we are in Christ directly impacts our service within the body of Christ. If we are equal image bearers of God, if we are co-heirs with Christ, if the Holy Spirit gives his gifts without uh, delineation to race or gender or class, 
then our qualification to serve in the body of Christ rests on one thing, and that is our faith in Christ and his redeeming work in our lives. In my own experience, these echoes I've also heard. I was explicitly taught that I was equal to men in being, but not in my function. Therefore, being viewed as there's the fancy word, ontologically inferior to my brother, I was taught that I would never lead a man, that God would never gift me with a spiritual gift that placed me in leadership over men, certainly not in religious spheres, and hopefully not in secular spheres. I was taught at a very young age that by virtue of my materiality, being female, um, I had a certain place in the world, in the church, and at home. And telling you that today, um, there's a lot of pain there. But I can tell you that I can recall those things and just feel a sense of gratitude because of the work that the Lord is healing in, in my life. And it was, it's a sense of gratitude that even though I was taught those things and they were very destructive, that I'm gratitude for those experiences because God has um, made me listen and tune into him for my identity And so I remember having these conversations about hypothetical questions that went like this. What if a female is elected president? My dad was in the military. (laughs) Dad, will you work for a female commander-in-chief? What if in my career I am promoted over a man? What if a woman has more qualifications? Should she defer to a man based solely on her gender? So very early on, I was asking, how consistent are we going to be with this biblical interpretation that women are ontologically inferior? Patricia Gundry in Woman Be Free answers those questions I had long ago eloquently. She says, if subordination of woman is spiritual and extends to all of her relationships, if all her life she must be under the command of some man, whether father, husband, or son, then she never attains the equality and freedom Christianity has claimed to give her. Um, This is not um, a gender problem. Human nature, men and women, are both easily prone to make inaccurate assessments of someone's moral character, their talents, their wealth, and their intellect. The human heart, we know, struggles with prejudice. Throughout history, and even today, we clearly see a prejudice towards women advanced in theology, and that is what we're addressing. Jesus models for us a clear example in this passage of his relationship with men and women as equal and how he cares for them impartially. So we've seen Simon's reaction. Now Luke gives us Jesus' reaction. He says, Simon... I have something to tell you. In other words, he's like, let me teach you something. And Jesus, in Jesus' fashion, tells a story of two men who have great debts that they cannot pay, and they are canceled. And he asks Simon, who will love more? Simon answers correctly, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. Jesus, in his story, is exonerating this woman because she was responsible responsive to Jesus's forgiveness, and she loves him. And even though it meant defying cultural views related to her gender, 
she takes this great initiative to do what Simon did not. She washes Jesus' feet with her tears. She wipes them with her hair, and she anoints Jesus with her oil. It's an extravagant display of love. And then after telling the story of the canceled debts, Jesus invites Simon to see this woman in a different way. I really like this part of the story. He says, Simon, look at this woman. Now that I've told you the story and and taught you something, let's look at her again. And he draws Simon's attention to her, and he defends the function of this woman to Simon, saying, look, you didn't wash my feet. You didn't greet me with a kiss. You didn't anoint me. Yet this woman has washed my feet, greeted me with a kiss, and anointed me with oil. The sinful woman is exercising remarkable insight into the nature of Jesus' mission, and the Pharisee is blind. What she did, her function, is an extremely courageous, extravagant, and humble act that fills a role that should have been filled by Simon the Pharisee. She anoints Jesus. She performs in this act a priestly and prophetic function It was the humblest, most unqualified person performing a function out of step with traditional patriarchy of her culture. Thankfully, we can all think of women in our lives who act with great courage and strength and service in our church, families, and communities. Many women in history have assumed positions of leadership through God's gifting. So why is this view of ontological inferiority still prevalent? I think if we listen to our own stories, we receive insight. And so that's what I've been trying to do since we started the series, is to ask questions and listen to people's stories. Um, I have a story to share with you tonight. It comes from my my neighbor, Sally. She gave me permission. Um, She calls this her priestly peanut M&M story. (laughs) Sally went to an all-girls high school. And she had a lot of wonderful female role models in her life. Her mom was a physician, and she went to a church that affirmed uh, women in positions of leadership. But when Sally was a senior in high school, she said, I can remember like it was yesterday. I was sitting there, and my teacher had opened up this open discussion on women in leadership. And um, she said it was going great until my peer, another girl, piped up and said, no, women may not lead because... And then she gave all these scripture verses that sounded so convincing to Sally that she went home that day crying to her mom. And she's like, Mom, I can't lead. I'm a woman. Thankfully, Sally's mom had enough um, insight to know what to do next. So she picked up the, call, the phone. She called Trisha. Trisha is her female pastor. And she told her, Sally's really distraught. This is what happened today. We need your help. Sally's like, I don't know what Trisha was doing the day, but she dropped everything. She went by, bought a bag of peanut M&Ms, came over, and went through every scripture verse in the Bible where it showed women leading by God's design. And I asked Sally, I'm like, I mean, Sally's in leadership today. Obviously, that had a huge impact on her, but what about her peer? She still keeps in touch with her. I said, did she ever have a Trisha in her life to to model that role for her, to intercept that, that lie? Um, Because I believe verbally affirming a gift is not the same as seeing that gift modeled and therefore concluding, hey, I can do that too. It's one thing for me to tell my daughter, she's eight, 
say, Scout, you can do that. Yes, absolutely. But it's completely different for me to expose her to women that are actually doing those things. There are just not enough words to convey the actual concept of doing. And Jesus does this. He makes a model out of this woman. We don't know when or where, but her actions tell us that she had already found freedom and forgiveness in Jesus. Jesus had already done his redemptive work in her life, and he uses this opportunity to boldly state, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. How does Jesus judge this woman? By her love and her faith, not by her sin, and certainly not by her gender or social class. Jesus is fundamentally concerned with her now being fully restored in her community. He extends to her peace, shalom, wholeness, that restored her to a status above and beyond the social norms of her culture. To bring this idea full circle, recall that we began with a church advancing a theology that views women as inferior to men. But the kingdom of God will not pander to men's prejudices It will drive us beyond the shallow interpretations of Scripture that support our preconceived ideas, and it will surprise us, as it has me, with unexpected and sometimes upsetting upside-down order of things. Well, one of the ways that our Lord illustrates this upside-down nature of the kingdom, and one of the ways our Lord illustrates the different way that the people of God are supposed to relate as men and women is by the way that he structures his first community. And as we saw when we heard the text read, it's very different than anything the world had seen. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him and also some women. And then Luke describes the women. Now, Paige has done a great job of describing how the early church saw this, and we've talked before about how in Judaism at the time, uh, Jewish men would pray, thank you, God, for not making me a woman, that uh, Jewish women were not seen as even fully human in some cases. They had no rights. They were seen as slaves. And so one of the things, or property, one of the things that Jesus is doing as he preaches the good news is he's modeling the good news by the way he structures his new community. And, and so he brings together 12, women, 12 men, the disciples, and also some women. Now, it was interesting. I went back to my Greek New Testament to study this a little bit. And uh, the word also is not in the Greek New Testament. And I don't know why, and I'm not saying there's a conspiracy here, but in, in my mind, also is sort of a, you know, like also ran. Or, you know, there was, there's the 12 and also some women. But all the Greek says, and they're grammatically two parallel clauses, there's 12 men and some women. And then the common thought is, isn't that nice that the women went along to cook for these guys while they did their work? Well, let's look at them for a second. Mary Magdalene and uh, Susanna are both at the tomb before the disciples, and they are the first to preach of the risen Christ, the first apostles to share the message of the risen Christ to the rest of the apostles. So they become very important in the history of the church. Second thing I want you to see is that 
One of them is the wife of uh, Herod's household manager or chief of staff. Now, I don't know how that happens. This is the most powerful, one of the most powerful men in the kingdom. His wife falls in love with Jesus and starts to follow him and then take his husband's money that comes from Herod to fund the king of the Jews, who's eventually going to be crucified under his watch. And then the last thing to see is that these women support the whole mission. So these are wealthy women. Uh, I don't know, in the NFL, you have owners and players. And in this scenario, the women are the owners and the disciples are the players. So let's put away this idea that they were just cooking and knitting sandals or whatever you do at the time. So the, the idea is, is that Jesus, as a way of modeling Galatians 3.26, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ. As a way to model that, he creates a community where everyone is a full participant. And that's the principle. Now, there's a lot that we could say about that tonight. And, and, and again, um, Paige and I were talking about what, what are we trying to do in this series? Because one brother said, you know, are, are, you, are you really just going to slam on men for six weeks? Because that sounds a lot like my dinner table. <laughs> and I, said, I said, no, that's not, not really the goal. Um, uh, there's a prophetic piece to this in that we do want to say this is God's vision for men and women, that they are both full partners and fully included, and everyone's, everyone's equally participating in the, in the kingdom. And we want to point out that vision, and we want to show the gap between that and where uh, a lot of women's daily experience is. And I know it's very easy as a man, as I often think, it says, well, you know, they almost had a woman president, and, you know, it's going well, and women are leading everywhere, and, you know, what's, what's the problem? And I've talked to some of you who are women that have said, what's the problem? It's working fine for me. I've talked to a lot of others of you who've said there's a huge problem and you're stirring up all sorts of stuff. Um, and and, and you can, we'll finish that sentence in different ways. Um, there is a problem. Let me read just briefly this uh, uh, paragraph from an article about Silicon Valley. In 2015, a group of female tech investors and executives conducted a survey of 200 senior-level women in Silicon Valley titled The Elephant in the Valley. The study demonstrated how intertwined and pervasive the gender discrimination is. 84% of the participants reported that they'd been told they were too aggressive in the office, 60% said that they'd been excluded from important events because of their gender, and 60% reported unwanted sexual advances in the workplace. A large majority of those came from a superior. A third of the women said they'd been worried about their personal safety. Almost 40% said they didn't report the incidents because they feared retaliation. And there's a lot more in the article about that. So one of the things that we just want to, we just want to say, yeah, that, that is real, and as men in the body of Christ and women in the body of Christ, if we are to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we need to actively, as much as we can, be joining God in establishing his kingdom on earth. And so that means, brothers, whenever you have the opportunity to open the door for a woman, to bring a woman into the table, to include woman in the inner circle, you should take it. That's a very practical application. Now, I, I know it's easy to think, well, it's happening. They're everywhere. Well, <laughs> there's a, a very powerful woman I know 
You know her name. She's on every board in the town. Privately, she says once, no one listens to a word I say. I'm a token. I know of a very powerful woman leader, you know her name, who took over a position recently, a guy that works under. He said, I have never seen anything like this in my life. I said, what? The men in the room totally disrespect her. One of them was on his phone the whole time while she was talking. So it's real. It's real. And whenever we can, we need men to try to include women in the inner circle. The other observation I would make in Christian marriages, guys, she's not your daughter. I just see this too often where instead of equal partners, it looks like a father and a daughter. That is not God's intent. Well, didn't he say that the woman was the helper in Genesis 1? Let me tell you what that word means. It's azair. It's used for God. It's someone with whom you cannot fulfill your role. It doesn't mean um, other things. It, <laughs> it means full partner. Okay? The most important thing of this, though, and Paige and I were talking about this too, we want to have a prophetic sense to this series. We, we want to say as the church, yes, this is an issue, and we've been behind it for too long. But if we just stop there, we have really missed the. That's not the good news of the gospel, right? The prophetic word leads to hope and grace and healing. The other thing we hope happens in this series is that there's healing for both men and women. Because let me tell you, when you have things goofed up, in terms of how men and women relate, when you mimic the fallen culture and you aren't living in the spirit of what God intended, you hurt both men and women. And part of what you see in this beautiful picture is there are 12 men and a bunch of, of ladies, we don't know how many, but we know they're there because they've been healed by Jesus Christ. So the other thing that we want to have happen in this series is that issues that have been brought up around this, the pain that is there, can be acknowledged, exposed, and started to be healed. And again, I think it goes for both men and women. When, when you start to say to a young man, when you hand him wild at heart and say, this is what a godly man looks like, and he's built like me, it really can do some harm. I don't like horses. I don't like to fix things. I don't like to hit people. <laughs> it can really do a number. When we start to, instead of just taking God's vision for what a man looks like, we, we kind of take a certain cultural vision. The same is true with a woman. I think a lot of men need healing for this for shame. So I'll end with this story. You know, I've told you that I do spiritual direction, and, and one of the ways that we do spiritual direction, at least when I do it, is a lot of times a person will bring in a dream. It helps us kind of understand what God's doing, and we ask the Holy Spirit to help us interpret the dream. So, uh, and I ask permission to share this. So, uh, a woman brings in a, uh, a dream, and essentially in it, uh, she is a minority, minority woman with a spear that goes through the back of her head and out of her nose. And as we prayed about it and asked the Holy Spirit to show her what that was, she said, you know, 
that's, she called it, she said, that is what it was like to grow up in my church and the teachings that I received around gender. It is a wound that has penetrated me to my very core, but I am so used to it and my whole life has been so structured by it that I'm terrified of pulling the spear out. Because if I do, I'll bleed to death. So a lot of times this happens in spiritual direction. That became kind of a theme. We were working on it. And then one day, just the Lord kind of took us to a certain place. And we prayed that the Holy Spirit would pull out the spear. And the Holy Spirit came in a powerful way. And she experienced him doing just that and experienced a measure of measure of real and significant healing. So that's really the vision for this. Don't want to just make you angry. Do want to acknowledge that the church has often failed in treating you women as equals. Do want to say, brothers, let's do better. And want to say to brothers and sisters, there's healing. Let's pray.